Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. If you are using the Bibles under your seat, it can be found on page 825. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. Glad to be with you here this morning. Getting excited for the celebration on the 23rd. 30 years. It's uh, pretty exciting, right? Yeah, we can applaud that. We can put hands together in a way that makes noise. That's awesome. So I want to approach the sermon a little bit differently today. You guys know I'm basically the one-trick pony when it comes to how I preach, sort of like main point. But today what I'd like to do is to, to spend just a lot of time setting up what we're going to talk about today. And so we're actually going to get to the passage about the halfway point of the sermon and, and then unpack some implications from it. So Lately, I, I, so this is common for me to just get lost in rabbit trails of researching odd topics. So lately, the, the rabbit trail has been spiritual communes, like alternative spirituality communes. So I've been watching a lot of documentaries. And uh, so I've been looking into like, you know, communes like the, the one in Oregon, Rajneesh Param, which was where the Rajneeshis were in the, the 70s. Uh, I've been looking into this place called Findhorn. Again, like, I know, I see Brian shaking his head over there. It's weird. I get it. But it's super interesting stuff. So Findhorn, Scottish Highlands, again, basically a bunch of hippies from the 60s established this uh, commune in the Scottish Highlands, and really strange stuff happens out there. And so I've been looking into these different things. It's, just, it's, it's fascinating. You have sort of different communes based on, like, one religion, like the Rajneeshis, in Oregon, or, or Findhorn, where it's basically everybody kind of has a do-it-yourself spirituality without any, any, anything to unify them. What, what's interesting about all the communes that I've been looking at is they all sort of pride themselves on their inclusivity. They all sort of pride themselves on a sense of equality, right? They pride themselves on welcoming all kinds of people, but what inevitably happens is it ends up being kind of in word only. 
So they usually end up with like a little bit of ethnic diversity and maybe a little bit of generational diversity. But when it comes to status, things are much different. So take, for instance, again, the Rajneesh Param in, in Oregon. Uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who founded the, the, the commune, literally said that what he was proud of was that they were attracting the intellectual elites of society. They were attracting the influencers, the connected. And there wasn't much there for people who were lower income or for people who didn't have PhDs or, or weren't in high-powered sort of positions. That wasn't really even possible for them to become a part of that commune. And that was something that their leader was very proud of. And then with Findhorn, like, you don't have them actually stating, like, hey, we're literally just marketing this to the elites. But that's what inevitably ends up happening, is that it just it becomes this place that's only possible to take part in. It's a community that's only possible to take part in if you're the sort of person that would end up as, as one of the elites of society. Christianity, historically, has been pretty different. So from the beginning... In, even in the ancient world, Christians had this really unique reputation. They had a reputation for attracting the lowliest in society. So they almost had the opposite reputation as like the Rajneeshis in, in Oregon. They attracted the lowliest. So this is a DNA-level sort of thing with our faith. And one of the ways you saw this was, was how Christians ate together. So they had this thing called the agape feast. Usually this would be preceded by what we call communion. So it, it, with communion, they would they'd break bread, take the wine, and they'd have this giant feast, and they would all approach the same table together. And at that table, you would have people of all different kinds of statuses in society. You'd have men and women, which shared different status roles in the ancient world. Uh, masters, slaves, adults, children, they would all approach the same table and eat. And that was pretty controversial in the ancient world. It doesn't seem like a big deal to us, necessarily. But in the ancient world, this was really unique. And the reason why is because when you ate together, you were symbolically associating with that person. So if you ate with somebody, you were symbolically sort of associating with them, saying, like, this is, this is my crowd. You're identifying with them. And so masters would never eat with slaves. Men would never eat with women. Adults would not eat with children. And the reason why is because I'm not going to identify with that group. Eating together was about status. And so everywhere else in the ancient world, there were these really demarcated sort of ways of eating together. But when the Christians got together, the early church, what was interesting is that they all got together to eat. And it's actually interesting. It's in your your Bibles. You can look it up. There's actually a passage in one of the letters of Paul where he just lays into the church in Corinth because they aren't doing this. Because the, 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 the groups in Corinth were still sort of keeping the status law, you know, rules of society in place or whatever. So the, the rich were showing up and, and eating early because they could afford to, to leave their places of work. But the laborers would show up late and all the food would be gone. And Paul just lays into them. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 11. And so, like, he wants them to, to disregard these ideas of social status because he thinks they are an insult to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. For reasons that we're going to unpack in a little bit. So this whole quality of the early Christians, it it was very scandalizing in the ancient world. And I want to hang on that a little bit longer. One of the interesting ways we see this is in the writings of Celsus. So Celsus is responsible for writing one of the earliest attacks on Christianity, which is super fascinating to read. So he was writing in the early 100s, I think, uh, maybe mid-100s. I'm not totally sure on the date, but 
pretty relatively early on, he mounted an attack on Christianity. He sarcastically called the uh, the thing he wrote on the true doctrine, you know, trying to get a little jab in. But so I'd love to throw up a uh, some quotes by Celsus. So what's interesting is that a number of points in on the true doctrine. Celsus kind of shows his hand, and he reveals this like le- a certain level of disgust with Christians and their way of life. And it's pre- pretty obvious that the reason why is because they don't seem to care about class. So here's a couple quotes. Taking its root in the lower classes, Christianity continues to spread among the vulgar. Nay, one can even say it spreads because of its vulgarity and the illiteracy of its adherents. It thrives in its pure form among the ignorant. Christians manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over only the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children. So he's revealing sort of ancient, ancient world opinions of women and children. He was, a, he was a Greek living in the Roman world, so intellectual elite Greek living in the Roman world. So he's sort of revealing opinions of, of women and children. We, yep, thanks. So it is only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception— and slaves, and women and children, of whom the teachers of the divine word wish to make comments, converts. I think it's this last one that's just the kicker for me. He asks, what is this preference of sinners over others? Fascinating, right? Ancient texts. So Celsus thinks Christianity is a religion of the lowly, the immoral, the dumb. Many of his critiques are actually critiques that you, you often hear from, from folks like the New Atheists even today. Even though he, he was not an atheist, he was pagan. But it's as though the reason, like, he, he seems to have this idea of Christianity where it's like, the only reason why you would want to take part in this is if you, you believe that, like, like, by becoming a part of it, you could somehow move up in society, right? Like, the only reason to become a Christian is because you're so uneducated to believe what they claim, but also you're so low in society that you're going to use Christianity to somehow become a bigger fish in a smaller pond. These people actually think something of you, and so you want to become a part of it. So that's why he thinks it's attracting the lowest in society. And other than that, he thinks Christians don't have anything going for them. So in his book, he conveniently fails to interact with like intellectual giants like Irenaeus, or even consider why, why even the poor would join a group that was just being recurrently fed to lions at the time. That's neither here nor there. What I want to point out is that from the beginning, the thing that set Christians apart, the thing that set Christians apart in the beginning, was that what society said about you didn't matter to them. That is what set Christians apart. That what society says about you doesn't matter to them. In fact, even many of the leaders in the early church, and this is the aspiration here at Trinity, that, that even among the, the elders, we would look like servants and not like rulers. And this whole idea, this was intolerable to people like Celsus because he, like, he existed in, the, in a community where his accomplishments and his talents and his intelligence meant something. It was, it was power, right? But when he looked at the Christians, he was looking at a community in which his accomplishments and intelligence and talents would gain him nothing as far as worth or status. So nowadays, we like to congratulate ourselves that we don't care about status as much. Or at least the only people who care about status are like, 
you know, I don't know, the either big government or big business. And otherwise, nobody cares about status. We like to congratulate ourselves on this. But, of course, that's categorically false. And I don't even have to talk about the underclass in America or the underclasses in America. I can just point to most of our Instagram accounts, right? Like, we post in order to communicate our worth, right? When's the last time you saw a post where it's like just a dude in line at the deli, like, at Subway again, hashtag blessed. Like, that never happens. It never happens because you, that's not why you post. Subway doesn't give you any social leverage, right? You, you, you post at places like Milwaukee Taco. Look how they plated this, right? And, and then Instagram. And what you're doing is you're trying to, to show that you're living the good life. Like, you're implicitly trying to, to communicate that I'm not assuming this of all of you. I'm just saying this is like the societal norm. It's called virtue signaling. But we're trying to communicate that we have sort of a, a higher status. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, uh, the whole thing that was happening on Instagram uh, where folks would like wake up in the morning and take a picture of themselves and post themselves with bedhead. Did anyone see this? So it was sort of like, like, oh, we're trying to subvert this whole virtue signaling thing. Like, oh, look, you know, Mom life, bedhead. But of course, even then, what they were actually doing was saying, like, I look that good, and I just got up. Like, (laughs) behold my status. The whole thing was a form of virtue signaling. I only met one person, one mom who lives in Gages Lake, uh, who's a friend of our family, who, who would really subvert the system, and she would, like, purposely make herself look just, like, comically disheveled and then post that. And it was awesome because it was actually subverting it. So, like, we're, we're, we're a society that's obsessed with status. We're, we're on social media constantly trying to show that we're living the good life, and then, so let's dig a little bit more, though. So what, what is it that sort of establishes status for us? I think for us in the United States, the way that we determine status, we, we think we are what we contribute. We think we are what we contribute. And that doesn't just mean work. That means you have a personality trait that other, people's, other people want. It means you have a talent. That there's something about you, your humor, whatever can be marketed, even across just social media in a small little circle of people, we think we are what we contribute. Or another way to put it is that someone is worth their usefulness. And there are a number of ways that this plays out on a large scale. So I used to work in nonprofit and and. Fortunately, I was a, a part of a nonprofit that I don't think was, was guilty of this as much. It was still present. But by no means as much as it was in other nonprofits. They were constantly trying to, to push against it. But when I would start to brush shoulders with folks at working at other nonprofits, it was incredible to hear how they talked about the, the folks they were serving. They consistently talked about lower-income folks as being unintelligent or even scheming, as though that's the norm. It became clear to me that many of the people I was brushing shoulders with who were working at other nonprofits had a really low opinion of the lowest people, like the lowest rung of society, as though like they're part of that the, the underclass because they're not worth as much as the upper class. It's a really disturbing thing. It was really widespread. And again, I was fortunate to be part of a, a nonprofit that was pushing back against that in our own behavior and being really self-critical in a healthy way. 
You see this, this playing out in literally how we define what a person is as a society. So all kinds of debates have been, have been you know, working around our, our, our culture for a while on the, the issue of personhood. And how do you determine what a person is? And of course what we mean is not how do you determine what a human is. How do you determine when someone with human DNA has worth? That's the, the, the argument around personhood. And consistently, we have large populations of people who are insisting that we should define what a person is by their utility. They are what they contribute. Therefore, if they don't contribute something, they're not worth anything. Again, this isn't a sermon on the sanctity of life, so I'm not going to hang on this long, but this is the ideology that operates behind most of the millions of abortions that have taken place in our country. Like, we can justify suctioning out a human being because they're not worth anything. They don't contribute anything. This is the same sort of assumption that's operating behind the, the, the current form of the eugenics movement in assisted suicide, even mandatory assisted suicide. You see this in the philosophy of Peter Singer, that if someone can't contribute something then we are justified in ending the lives of the elderly, the terminally comatose, or the disabled. Because we are our utility. Our culture is defining what a person is by their utility, and it's despicable. This is a gross ideology. But Christians throughout the ages have been subverting that assumption. And I'll add as well, I think most of us choose our friends on this basis, too. Our friends are the ones that have something to contribute to us. But Christians throughout the ages have been sort of subverting this. Christian communities all across the world today affirm, care for, respect, and are often led by people written off by society. And so what, what is it I'm not saying this is unanimous. Obviously, there are Christian communities that, that are totally led by status. I think many of them are in the United States. But the majority across the ages, across the world, are, are actively subverting this. And so how is that happening? And the answer comes down to what we as Christians refer to as the gospel. And essentially what the gospel is, is the, the announcement that God has chosen to relate to humanity in a very countercultural way. God has chosen to relate to us not on the basis of our usefulness to him, not on the basis of what we contribute to him in the form of good works, but on the basis of a gift. And that goes for all of us. Everybody has to receive this gift in order to relate to God, and that goes for the influencers and the influenced, the connected, and the socially inept, the sophisticated, and the underclass. All people must come to terms with God's grace. This is the, the, the idea operating behind all the writings of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, which means that none of us have higher status than anyone else in the eyes of God. All of us fall short of God's design and intention, and all of us must be forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice. And so a common phrase that you hear is that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And so, of course, this reality is amazing news to people who have been written off by society. It means that we are not worthless. It means that we're not forgotten. 
God loves us and has given us worth beyond anything society thinks we deserve. He's given us worth beyond anything that we actually do deserve. No matter who we are or where we've come from, we are not too far from God's grace. And so that's great news, and it feels like great news to many, many people in in our culture. I remember one particular church in in Waukegan uh, that we've partnered with in the past, Christian Neighbors Church. What what a beautiful thing to, to see the gospel announced to people of all different classes where, where you're seeing folks who are literally coming in off the streets and folks that are, are nearby professors. That's a vision of what the church is. And it's great news. It's also a culture shock. It's a culture shock to, to folks like Celsus who are used to feeling useful. Many of us are used to our usefulness getting us something. We're used to feeling noticed and important In a world where you are what you contribute, a lot of people feel like they're worth something because they contribute something. And it's really hard to realize that God's opinion of us isn't necessarily the same as people's opinion of us. That the things that make us incredibly impressive on a resume don't don't mean a lot to God. And that's what we see played out in today's parable. You remember last week how, I want to give some context to this because it's important, but last week Jesus encountered this young man who was very wealthy, right? He was a guy who, who had a lot of status in society. He seemed very sincerely devout. He was competent. He was successful. But his heart belonged to his belongings, right? That, that, was, that was the issue that we ran into last week is the, the young man, his heart belonged to his standard of living, to his security, but along with all of that, part of what, he, what Jesus asked him to give up last week was his status. And that was too much for him. And so Jesus has this, this line where he says that in the kingdom, we, we gain far more than we give up. That if we give up status and security and standard of living, if, we, if we're rejected as a result of it, we can feel assured that in the, in the church itself and in the kingdom to come, we will, be, we will gain a hundredfold. And so Peter, he kind of latches onto that, right? He notices that phrase. He's like, hey, I've given up everything, right? What does that get me in the kingdom? And, and Jesus' answer, like we talked about, was really interesting, where he, he affirms with Peter, like, Peter, it is absolutely in your self-interest to follow me. Absolutely. But then he adds this line at the end where he says, but the first will be last and the last first. It's in your self-interest to follow me. But that doesn't mean that you're going to have higher status. In fact, you should prepare to be surprised, Peter. Because my kingdom isn't like the kingdoms of this world. So I want to go through the parable now, flesh it out a bit, and then share a few implications for us uh, toward the the end. So I'd like to reread it. I know we read it beforehand, but I think it's useful to approach it a second time just to, to keep it fresh in our minds before we start digging in. So chapter 20, read along with me if you could. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And then about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. 
And when even, evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. You've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this, to this last worker as I give to you. Am I, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So here's what's going on. You've got a landowner who wants to find workers for his vineyard, but it becomes clear pretty quickly that he's in, the, in this to do more than just hire some useful workers. He's up to something. And here's why we know that. Because he doesn't hire enough people right away. So either he doesn't know his own land, or he's trying to accomplish something. He's... Scheming a little bit, right? And the parable invites us to sort of be asking this question, like, what is he up to? Why does he keep on going back? Doesn't he have enough laborers? So let's see what he's up to. So first he gets a few workers right off the bat. Start the day, so this would have been like 6 a.m. And he agrees with them on a denarius. So a denarius was a typical day's wages. So, you know, he explains the work to them. They reply that a day's wages sounds fair. And so what I want to point out is that at the beginning of this story, the first workers have no problem with the wage. At the beginning of the story, they're totally fine with it. It seems fair. So in other words, the amount of work that they're going to put in will be more than compensated by what the landowner is going to give. And that becomes really important. So now the, 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 the master does something interesting. He, he goes back out to the marketplace and each time he's bringing more and more people in, what you've got to realize is that in the marketplace, what you'd basically have is there, there were a group of laborers, and usually these were, these were not laborers that were very established in society. They, they didn't have a sort of established trade. So these are folks that, that basically just have to tr- go out in the marketplace and try to find something day after day. And they're dependent on the master hiring them. And so as the day's going on, what we're supposed to understand from that detail is that the people who are like, left over at the 11th hour at like 5 p.m., they're the ones no one wanted. So in other words, as the day's going on, more and more people are being eliminated, and the master's going out and hiring people who are less and less desirable as employees. He's bringing in the lowest of society, more and more and more so, until finally it's literally the ones that no one wanted, fit for nothing, and he brings them in. And so he lines them up, and then here's the other interesting thing that, that the master does. He's going to pay them in reverse order. Why is he doing that? Why is he going to pay them in reverse order? I think the reason why is because they're all lined up, which means the first workers are going to see what the last workers get. So he's, he's devising this whole thing so that everybody in that line will be aware of what everyone else is getting. And he starts paying them. He pays the, the last workers a day's wages, even though they maybe worked an hour and a half. Same with the 3 p.m. guys, the noon guys, the 9 a.m. guys. And finally he gets to the first workers, and they're thinking like, man, we took the brunt of the day, scorching heat, 
I bet he's going to pay us double. I bet he's going to pay us more, right? Instead, he claps a denarius in their hand. Everybody has received the same payment. And so the, the first workers, they start grumbling. They start thinking like, man, we should have gotten more, right? Why do they think that? They think that because they think you are worth what you contribute. You are your usefulness. They've proven themselves useful. They've worked all day. Plus, they were the cream of the crop, right? Like, we were the ones that were most desirable at the beginning of the day. What do you mean paying us a denarius when the untouchables there also got paid a denarius? So they think they must be worth more. But the master points something out. He points out that hours ago, they all thought their wages were fair. They all agreed that a denarius would more than compensate the work they were going to do. Twelve hours ago, their work was earning them a satisfying wage. The only thing that's changed is now they think, now they realize that their work really wasn't the thing that determined their wage. Their work had no influence on their worth. Everything soured for the first workers when they realized that their compensation on some level wasn't compensation at all. It was gift. And so it wasn't going to earn them anything. They get mad when they realize that, that they, in the master's eyes, are worth the same as the 5 p.m. guys. They're mad because their wages didn't make them worth more. They wanted status, not just fair wages. The story is a story about grace. It is a story about the generosity of God towards sinners. It is a story about how the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level. It's a story about how we don't come to God for compensation. We come to him for a gift, and as a result, none of us can claim to be worth anything more than anyone else. God's grace isn't compensation, it's a gift. So how does this play out practically? I want to sort of explore three different ways that the gospel changes the way we think of status. I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. If you guys think of more, share it with each other. That's, that's part of what, what this is for, is to continue contemplating on God's word and, and be shaped by it. But here's three ways that I thought of as I, was, as I was preparing this. So first, the way God's grace changes status, the, the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted. So have, have you, any of you guys heard of the Chalmers Center? The Chalmers Center? So the Chalmers Center is a group that sort of researches the relationship between economics and um, poverty alleviation. So have you heard of When Helping Hurts, that book? Yes. So the difference between preaching and watching television is that it's live. So I'm actually here. And in, when questions are asked, you know, when my kids are watching, like, bubble guppies or something, my kids never fall for it. Like, the, wh- what shape is this one? Pause. My kids are too smart. They're like, you're not even real. And so they, they never answer. Sometimes I feel like we've been so, like, habituated to that that we see preaching in the same way. So guys, talk. You know, like, talk to me. All right? Thank you. All right, so have you heard of When Helping Hurts? All right, so it's a book by the Chalmers Center, and it's a pretty good resource. So I think, I think the Chalmers Center, were, they were either the ones behind the study or they just distributed it. In any case, they had a big part to play. But they did this fascinating thing where they went to uh, 
you know, materially poor populations, and they asked them to define poverty. And it, it was beyond just the United States, included the United States, but went into global poverty and, and other locations. And the results are eye-opening. It's amazing how little they talk about their lack of resources. I mean, they mention it, but across the board, in, in the United States, all over the globe, what, what folks who are actually materially poor, the way they define poverty is they say you're worthless. It's about being worthless to society. They had an emotional response, not a physical material response. Poverty is about worthlessness. And what that means is that this, this whole idea that you are what you contribute, it affects people in more ways than we anticipate because people start to think, hey, I don't contribute that much. Some of that isn't even my own fault, but I don't contribute that much. And what does that mean? I'm not worth as much. So poverty becomes a cycle where it's difficult for people to even motivate themselves into trying because they think that they just innately are the kind of person that fails. It's the, the sort of default. In fact, recent studies have linked the violence in low-income areas with this sense of worthlessness, which would help to explain why higher-income areas typically have less violence. The citizens feel like they're worth more. They have at least a little bit of a sense of their, their own worth. But in lower-income areas, more and more psychologists are seeing a link there between a sense of worthlessness and the violence that breaks out. So it's the same principle that pra- plays out small-scale with bullies. Most bullies are being bullied at home. They're being told constantly, you're worth nothing, and so what do they do? They find some weaker kid, and they try to establish a new pecking order with them at the top, right? It's about worth. But if our worth is determined by Jesus and not by works, then we have this kind of new freedom. We aren't competing with each other. Let me back up just slightly. We aren't competing with each other. In fact, in the middle of the mess, the gospel comes and rearranges the way we relate. And so this is why the the gospel always seems to take root faster among the poor and the hurting, because it's the news that they have worth. For many people, it's the first time they've ever been told they have worth. Just as much worth as as the folks around them that they envy, just as much as, as maybe their oppressors, just as much worth as the bully. Just as much worth as anybody else because we are all desperately in need of God's grace. And so there will always be some who, who, who like Celsus that we talked about, they'll say that the worthless are only attracted to Christianity because they want to ascend the social ladder. But I kind of want to challenge that. I think it's way more likely that the, the, the poor and the hurting and, and the lower in society, I think they're attracted to Christianity because they are more in touch with its fundamental reality that we are all in need. They aren't surprised by their need. Many of us are. In this story, the first workers insist on fairness. They want to be recognized for their extra work. They want the master to deal with them according to their works. And some of us relate to that. Some of us have sort of a sense of our own righteousness. Like, man, I'm a good person. Shouldn't God recognize that? Shouldn't God relate to me based on my works? And I would just say, be super hesitant before you say God should relate to you according to your works, because he will. 
we have a really, really deceptive mind. Really bad self-perception. Really inflated egos. The writers of Scripture caution us. They, they, they say, be very hesitant before you insist that God deal with you by your works because you'll discover that the standard is actually way too high. You may be a good person. You may be a really enjoyable person, really special, but you are only special compared to other self-ruling, habitually egoistic people like yourself. You don't measure up to what God has made you for. And we are all complicit in making this world the mess it is. And so the writers of Scripture are telling us, Trust us, you want the worth of Christ. So this should change the way we relate to each other. So one pastor says it really well. He says that because of the gospel, no one should walk with a swagger and no one gets to walk with a limp. Because of the gospel, your pride is undermined. You have to actually confront who you are. But also, because of the gospel, you are being told in no uncertain terms that you are loved and worth something. So the result is this like humble confidence It changes how we see ourselves, also changes how we see other people. No one is worthless in the eyes of God. So we should be a community that honors the lowly. We should be a community that welcomes people in, people that society considers useless or weird or stupid or uninteresting or boring. They should find a home among us. They should feel valued with the value God gives them in Christ. We should treat each other as people who are loved. Treat each other according to to the value God gives us in Christ. So the gospel humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Secondly, because of the gospel, we go from competitors to compatriots. So in the first parable, the workers are mad because look what it says. So it says, the master has made them equal. Right, it's it's in, I'll show you which verse. They grumble because The master has made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. The whole idea is about equality in their minds. Like, if we are what we contribute, then the only way to really be worth something is to be able to contribute more than everyone else. Competition is baked into our culture in a big way. And that might be fine for the marketplace, but it's terrible for spirituality. We compete with each other spiritually. Like, how often do we eye each other and say, why is that person being recognized and I'm not? Why why doesn't anybody notice me and what I'm doing right now? I'm the kinder person. I'm the holier person. When we consider people who, who are not believers, oftentimes we do one of two things. We either notice someone who's not a believer who, who's failing morally in ways that we're not. We say, like, see, being a Christian makes me awesome. Right? Like, I am morally superior. Thank you, Lord. I am not like the tax collector. Or we do another thing. I think this is happening way, way more often for Christians in our society. We meet someone who is not following Jesus and is morally superior to us. And then we start going through these mental gymnastics to try to find some way of figuring out how we're still a little bit better. Because we feel threatened by that. It's hard for us to make sense of, like, how, how, are, how are they a nicer person than me? I'm a Christian. And so we, try to, we feel threatened by it. So we try to figure it out, all the while forgetting that this is a faith based on grace and not on works. If our worth is determined by Jesus and not by our works, then we have this new freedom because we're free to not 
compete. I had a friend of mine growing up who I was always jealous of because I was ruling my life by status. And so he, he was just super talented. He's still a friend of mine. He's one of the most wonderful people that you'll ever meet. And he, he's had this way of like meeting people who would pour into him and he'd learn new things and acquire new talents and, and was very humble. He'd just ask for help. And I was so jealous of how talented he was because we were kind of into the same things. And I realized after a while that, like, the big difference between he and I is that he just kept on asking for help. But I wouldn't do that. Because in order to do that, I had to acknowledge my need. I had to acknowledge that I needed help at guitar or whatever it was I was interested in. I didn't realize that the gospel frees me to not compete. Because of the gospel, when we encounter someone who is farther along in the way of Jesus, we don't see them as a threat, we see them as a potential teacher. And it also means we don't hide our shortcomings. When we notice sin, we go to our brothers and sisters, confess, we ask for help. <laughs> Christian maturity isn't like a good fishing spot, right? So I, I fish in the area, and when you find a good fishing spot, you don't tell anybody, right? Because you don't want anybody to, to like, pressure that area and spook the fish or, like, use the same bait that you're using because then the fish will learn and they won't hit that bait when you— you don't tell anybody, about a good fishing spot, right? <laughs> Maturity in Christ is not like that, right? We don't lose anything by another Christian's maturity, which means we don't lose anything by sharing what we know. In fact, because of the way that Jesus has, has worked things, it becomes a sign of maturity that you're secure enough and intentional enough to help along newer believers. That's called discipleship. We've tried to capture this in our core values by saying that we want to be a community that's together for growth. Not competing for growth, together for it. Compatriots, not competitors. So finally, the gospel frees us to do good for God's pleasure, not for God's payment. So you, you might be like many people at this point and saying like, okay, so if this is how the gospel works, then what is there to motivate me to do good? I want to take a minute first to say, I relate to that. I get it. Also, let's just take a second and say, it's probably not good that we can't find a reason to follow Jesus if it means that we can't get a leg up on somebody else. Like, let's acknowledge that's probably not a positive outlook to begin with. But more than that, because our worth is established in Christ ahead of time, we now have this freedom to be adventuresome in following Jesus to take risks in following Jesus. Because all the most important things have been resolved. The treasure and the goodness of the new creation has been established for you in the historical event of the resurrection, but it's also being offered to you now. We can actually take part in the way of life that God will bring about when the world is put right. That's part of salvation and we do it not so that we can be saved, but because in Christ we already are. Good works now are a way of participating in what makes God happy. It's a way of participating in the life of God. I shared this a few years ago, but I've always really enjoyed writing like stories or, or essays or whatever. In college, I took this creative writing class. And the class was taught by a woman named Molly McNett. And she was just crazy talented, like a really 
good writer. So to put it in perspective, she was published, but not just published. Her mentor was Marilyn Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize winner for Gilead. She graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. I mean, this, she was crazy good at writing. And so obviously I'm in this class and I'm really into writing and think like, I got to impress her. And so I, I tried to gain her approval by what I was writing. And I wrote a bunch of, do you know what metafiction is? Have you ever heard of metafiction? If you, uh, feedback? No, all right. You are all happier people as a result. You're all happier people because you don't know what metafiction is. You just, you have to be deeply miserable to enjoy it. So it's, I started writing a lot of like metafiction, like, oh, let me play with your mind. Well, you, you know, and it was kind of miserable. I didn't really enjoy a lot of writing when I was in that class. And what I produced was just really overwrought. It, was, it, wasn't, good, it wasn't good content. So years before, though, when I was living in my parents' home growing up, I used to write constantly. Just write and write and write. And whatever I wrote, I knew that I was going to end up sharing it with my parents. And I knew that they would always be pleased. Not necessarily satisfied, right? They would often have suggestions. But they, they always approved on some level. They were always pleased. And so I was, like, taking risks and writing weird stuff, and, and I enjoyed every second of it. I loved writing in my parents' home. It's honestly one of the, the greatest, it was one of the greatest joys of my life to this day. And I can tell you that it wasn't just because I loved writing. It was because it was their house. Both of them, in their own ways, emanated the love and approval of God to me all my years growing up. And so writing became a joy. I think doing good in Christ is like that. Either way, doing good is good, right? But we can either do it out of cold, rigid moralism, or we can do it knowing the approval and love of God that has been giving, given to us at the outset. Before I understood the gospel, goodness was always about status. If I was morally good, I felt I kind of purred inside, right? Because I felt like I was better or something. Now I can honestly say that, that my attraction to the good has to do with beauty and joy. That, like, there's goodness there. And I want to be a part of that. And because of Christ, I'm allowed to feel that way. If it wasn't because of the grace of God, I would always, I, there would be no other way to, to involve myself in, in moral beauty other than through moralism. Because I'd be constantly knowing, well, this is how I need to measure up. This is how I need to measure up. Am I doing good enough? As a result of being freed from that, there's joy. So this is what it's like to live in the kingdom where the first or the last and the last first. And the only reason why any of us would resent it is if we had a vested interest in status. So let's bring this home. Because of Jesus, you don't have to establish your worth with God. You don't have to be competent enough or good enough. It couldn't be if you tried. And the reason why is because the vision for what you were meant to be is so much higher than you realize, and the damage you have done is so much greater than you realize. If you don't feel that way, it's because you haven't exercised enough self-perception. I'm not saying that as an insult or as a joke. I'm saying that's, that's most of us are not very self-perceptive, and so we don't realize how much damage we've done. But God is determined to restore us. And so he has established our worth in the only way possible. Jesus lived a worthy life and credited it to us at his death. If you are in Christ, what others say about you doesn't define you. 
whether it's your incompetence, your insecurity, your awkwardness, if you were bullied, if you just never seem to fit in, if you are constantly embarrassed by things you say or you've allowed other people to make you feel small, then hear this. They don't have the power to determine your worth. If anybody tells you you are worth something other than what God has made you, disregard it. If there's like a constructive criticism embedded somewhere in there, then take that and use it and develop as a person. But as far as it concerns you and your worth, disregard the lies. Because of Jesus, you are a beloved child of God. If you are in Christ, your moral failures and shortcomings, your sin, they don't have the final word on your status. The darkest part of ourselves isn't enough to define us anymore. You are not what you contribute You are not your usefulness. You are what God says you are in Christ. No matter what others say about you, no matter what you've done, God sees you as a beloved child. Temporarily incomplete? Absolutely. A work in progress? Yes. Part of the promise is that God will finish the work, but you are not diminished in the meantime. Your status isn't up to you. You are worthy because Jesus was worthy for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we are just thankful for your grace to us. Thank you that you were good when we are not. Thank you that you lived a truly human life, the way human life was meant to be lived, by costly love, dependence on the Spirit, under the rule of God. Thank you, Lord, that, that you became one of us in order to save us that you identified with our weakness and that when you were among us, you did not seek out the intellectual elites. You sought out the lowest among us and identified with us. We love you, Lord, because you have first loved us without discrimination. God, I pray that we at Trinity Community Church would be increasingly a a people who embody this, that seek out the hurting and the broken, the materially poor, or even those among us who may, may be materially rich, but lonely and forgotten. God, I pray that we would be undiscriminating in our love for each other, that we would truly think of status the way you do. Without the cross and resurrection, that is impossible. But because of the cross and resurrection, it's a kind of life we have access to now. Thank you for it, Lord, and praise you.